The Apostle Paul calls for us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God and calls it our reasonable service. But what's reasonable about a total sacrifice of our body, mind, and soul? Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, the radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. We're glad to offer bits and pieces of ourselves as a sacrifice, a little bit of our time, a little of our money, a little of our service, but why would a rational person give everything to the Lord? Listen now as Dr. Boyce presents the five reasons why it's both natural and reasonable to fully surrender ourselves to God for His pleasure and His service. We're resuming our study of Romans 12 today, and we have come to the last phrase of verse 1. We're actually going to move on to verse 2 next time, but this last phrase of verse 1 says, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I want to begin by saying something that I have learned by experience is often disturbing to people, and that is that the words that lie behind this phrase in Greek admit of two different translations. That is to say, you can have two different meanings. The reason I know that is troubling is because when I've dealt with other texts that are similar, I have troubled people that have heard the teaching. Not long ago, I was in California, and I was talking there about definite atonement or particular redemption. That's the doctrine that Jesus died efficaciously for his own, the elect. And that is hard for people to understand, so I took a lot of time to explain it, and then I defended it. And then at the end, for about the last 15 minutes of the talk, I dealt with texts that seemed to teach the opposite. One of those texts is 2 Peter 3.9. It's the one everybody mentions, and it goes like this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I explained my understanding of that, namely that in that passage, Peter is not talking about all people in general, but he's talking about the elect. He gets into the passage with the question of why the final judgment is delayed, why God doesn't come back and punish sin. And he explains that it's not because God's indifferent to sin or simply postpones the judgment without any meaning. Rather, he has a purpose in it, and his purpose is this. He's patient. He's waiting until all who are his people, whom he has given to the Lord Jesus Christ, are born and repent and come to faith in him and live for him. It's part of his plan for the ages. Well, I explained that, and there was a woman there who was troubled by the doctrine and also by that text, and she went and talked to one of the other speakers about it. The other speaker endorsed everything that I had said about definite atonement, but he explained that particular verse another way. He said, uh, well, I, what I think that verse is saying is this. You have to understand, he said, that there are two different ways in which the word will is used in the Bible, as in God is not willing. One refers to God's efficacious will. That is, when God wills something, it's done because he wills it. And the other is what we would call a natural disposition. We can uh, will something, but not actually put it into effect. And he said, what I think that verse is saying is that God doesn't get his kicks out of sending people to hell. That's not what he wants. Well, that's a valid explanation of the verse. I think not the right one, but it's a valid one. The trouble was that greatly disturbed the woman. 
not that she disagreed with the doctrine, but that here were two teachers who were handling a key verse in two, seemed to her, entirely different ways. Now, I say that because we have a similar situation here in the phrase that we're studying. Perhaps not as much hangs on it, but it certainly can be translated in different ways. And if you compare various translations of the New Testament, you'll find that that's true. The problem is this. The word that is translated worship in that phrase, your spiritual worship, is the word latria, and it can mean either service or worship. Now, that in itself isn't so bad because we can understand how the worship of God is the service of God. Or if you're serving God in other ways, you may be worshiping him by the things you do. You can understand how those ideas would be combined. The problem comes in with the adjective, which is the word logikos, from which we get our word logical, and that can be translated either reasonable or spiritual. And when you combine that adjective with a noun, you get different translations. The old King James Bible said your reasonable service. And many of the modern translations, the New International Version is one, say your spiritual worship. So that really leads us with the question, what is it? Is it your reasonable service or is it your spiritual worship? Or is it reasonable worship and spiritual service? You can get four different combinations from that, and it's understandable if people get just a bit puzzled at that point. Now, one possible answer to that is that in the Greek language, the Greek words may actually embrace both ideas at the same time. It's very hard for us to understand when we're trying to translate one language to another, but often words in one language are richer than can be put into a single word in another language, and sometimes you have to have a more elaborate phrase for it. One example of doing that would be the New English Bible, which translates this phrase by saying, worship offered by the mind and the heart. You see, they're trying to say that Greek phrase is a little bit fuller than a simple English translation one way or the other and determine. So that's one way you could handle it. I think, however, that if somebody would press me for a choice, one translation or another, I would have to go with reasonable service because that is the most obvious and literal meaning of the word. After all, the word I gave you before, you heard it as logikos. It's the word we got our word logical from, or logic. Has to do with reason. It's the word Paul uses earlier in the letter where he says, reckon on these things, count them as so. They are so, so count them as so. It, it has to do with that kind of rigorous exercise of the intellect or mind. And the reason I think you have to take it that way is because the very next verse begins to talk about the mind. It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So in that kind of a connection, it's most reasonable to think that what he's talking about here is reasons why we should offer such wholehearted service to God, which he's been urging upon us in the first part of the verse. Now, that says a lot about worship and service. Let me just share with you something John Murray says in his commentary. The service here in view is worshipful service, and the apostle characterizes it as rational because it's worship that derives its character from the fact that it enlists our mind our reason, and our intellect. In other words, worship and service that is mindless is not real worship according to the biblical way of teaching. He said it is rational in contrast with what is mechanical or automatic. 
You see, some of us think you worship in a mechanical or automatic way. You're here in church, you sit there, you kneel, you stand, you do certain things, that's worship. Well, according to this, it is not. This also has something to do with what being spiritual is all about, and here's the way Murray talks about that. The lesson to be derived from the term rational is that we are not spiritual in the biblical sense except as the use of our bodies is characterized by conscious, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of our God. Now, you see why that's important. He's going to lead us through a right way of thinking about things. He's going to tell us that if you don't begin to think as a Christian, if you don't develop a Christian mind, you're just going to be conformed to the world. As a matter of fact, that's the way you start out, to the world's pattern of thinking and the world's pattern of behavior. This renewal has to happen within, and it is rational. It's a reasonable thing. And so our service to God is the most reasonable thing as well. Now, that's what we want to study, and there are two things we have to see about it. First of all, we have to review the kind of service that's required. What is it that he's urging upon us? And then secondly, after we see what it is he's urging us to do, we have to see why that is so reasonable, why such demanding service is a reasonable thing for us to do. So let's start with the first. What is this service about? Well, we have looked at it. It has to do with sacrifice. And when we were studying that earlier, we saw the various adjectives that Paul links to that to describe what kind of sacrifice it is. First of all, it's a living sacrifice. You see, in his day, when anybody thought about a sacrifice, they thought about something dead. That's what you brought, an animal, to the priest, he killed it. It was a dead sacrifice. People naturally thought that way, but Paul says, no, the kind of sacrifice God wants is a living sacrifice. He wants you dead. He wants you functioning for him. Well, that's the first thing. Secondly, he said it's a bodily sacrifice. You have to give God your bodies. We know what he's thinking of because earlier in the letter, he began to talk about that same thing, saying that it involves our individual members. It's his way of talking about body parts. The first thing he talks about is the mind. You have to give that over to God to think his thoughts after him, to try to think as a Christian. And you have to give God your eyes to see what he would have you see, to read things that are wholesome, and ears to hear worthwhile things, and hands to do the right sort of things, and so on. So it's a bodily sacrifice. Our bodies have to be given to him. And then thirdly, that has to be holy. A sacrifice presented to God must be holy. That means consecrated to him. It means you can't be sacrificing to God in this sense if you've got one foot in the world and you've got the other foot in the Christian camp. That's not holy. That's the divided mind and a divided heart. Holy means holy, utterly, consecrated, given, body, soul, and spirit to God. And what he tells us, that if we do that, if we present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy, our body, then God will find that pleasing. That's an amazing word, pleasing. I think that anything we do could be pleasing to God, but so it is. That's what he says. So that's the kind of sacrifice. The problem, you see, is not understanding it. You know, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're well aware that he is the Savior and Lord, and that if you're going to follow him, it has to be the whole way. The problem is that we don't want to do that. We compromise, and rather than follow the Lord Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, we want to do it by degrees, or we want to offer him things or parts rather than ourselves. And so we'll give him a little bit of time. That's urged upon us. We'll volunteer for certain church functions or whatever, or we'll give him a bit of our money. That's urged upon us, but we don't give him ourselves. And because we haven't given him ourselves, the result is we don't give him much of our money or our time either, but we tell ourselves we do. 
Now, let's remember, you see, that when Jesus Christ died, He didn't die for your money or your time, He died for you. And when we're told in the Bible that God loves us, it's us He loves, not the things that we have. And therefore, we'll never really understand what this service is until we come to the point of personal surrender of our hearts, minds, and souls to Him. What we do, of course, is offer things, and I have sometimes used a great illustration from the Old Testament to show what we do. It's the story of Jacob as he returns from the far side of the desert where he had to go to get away from his brother Esau who was threatening to kill him. He had acted very disreputably toward his brother. His brother had ample cause to hate him, and his brother said he was going to kill him, and so he ran away. And he lived on the far side of the desert with his uncle Laban for 20 years, and he prospered. Time came for him to go home. Twenty years is a long time. During those two decades, he had more or less forgotten what he'd done. But as he started out on his way home, step by step, going toward Esau's territory, because Esau was still at home where he had left him, he began to remember what he had done. And I suppose he remembered Esau too, his red face and his anger as he said, I'm going to get you for that. So what had begun as a far-off, almost forgotten thing became increasingly frightening as he drew close. And finally, he stood at the Jabbok River, just on the border of Esau's territory, and he was trembling. Well, he said, before I cross over there, I better find out something about Esau. So he sent some messengers ahead, and he said, uh, find out what you can. Maybe Esau had moved away, you know. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? But he said, you find out if he's there, and if you find him, you know, come back and, and kind of give me an idea of what he's thinking. How's he feeling? And so the messengers went off, and it didn't take them very long. They found Esau quickly, and they came back, and they said, yeah, he's still there. And yes, he knows you're coming. He got word, and yes, he's also coming to meet you. And oh, yes, one other little thing. He has 400 armed men with him. Well, to Jacob, that was an army. That was terrifying. What was he going to do? He thought as quickly as he could. He said, well, I better divide my group into two parts here. So he sent some of the family and the servants and the animals over there, and he sent some of the family servants and the animals over there, and he said, if he attacks one group, the other group will escape. Yeah, but what if I'm in the group he attacks? And second thought, that didn't seem like such a good idea, so he backed up a little bit, and he said, let's try something else. Let's appease him. I'll send him gifts. So he got all of his animals together, and he took out 200 female goats, and he sent them ahead with a servant to lead them as a present for Esau. And he gave the servant these instructions. When my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say they belong to your servant Jacob, they are a gift to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. After that, he sent over 20 male goats, and he gave the servant in charge the same message. When you say Esau, you say this, they belong to your servant Jacob, they are a gift to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. Yeah, but what if Esau already had a lot of goats? What if Esau hated goats? Better send him something else. So he looked around, and he had 200 ewes. He decided to send them, so he sent them, and he sent a servant with them, and then he sent 20 rams, and after that he sent over all the rest of his livestock, and it's all listed there in Genesis 32. 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Each group had its servant in charge, all going out to meet Esau. It must have been hilarious. All of Jacob's possessions in these little groups going out across the desert in the direction where he had been told Esau, his brother, was coming with his 400 men. 
Even that wasn't all, you see, he was still there with his family. Now, he had two wives, you know. He had Rachel, who was the favorite wife, and Leah was not so favored. And so he turned to Leah and said, now, Leah, it's your turn. <laughs> and so Leah and her children started out across the desert, and then he turned to Rachel and said, well, dear, it's been nice, but uh, it's your turn. And so she started out with her one child, and then finally there was the book Jabbok, and then there was Jacob all alone by himself and trembling. Now, I don't know what kind of songs they had in those days, but I know that he must have had the equivalent of I Surrender All, because I think that's what he probably was singing, maybe humming it rather softly under his breath. I surrender all. You see, he was saying, I surrender all the goats, and I surrender all the sheep, and all the cows, and all the bulls, and all the camels, and yeah, I even surrender all the donkeys, and the wives, and the children. But he still hadn't surrendered himself. That night, you see, when it was dark, God sent his angel to wrestle him to the point of personal submission. Now, that's what a lot of us do, what a lot of Christians do. You see, we surrender things, and if God presses us, we give up a little bit more. And if he presses us, we give up a little bit more. But the last thing in the world we want to give him is ourselves. And when is the angel going to come and wrestle with you and bring you to that point. You see, that's what Romans 12.1 is all about. Now, the second half of this text has to do with the word reasonable, and that's a big question, isn't it? Why is anything like that reasonable? You know, after all, we are here to live for ourselves, aren't we? We only go around once, don't we? We ought to do it with gusto and get all we can get, shouldn't we? Well, you see, that's the world's thinking. That's what we have to be weaned away from. Also foolish thinking, it's not reasonable at all, it's irrational. Rational thinking is to give yourself to God. Why should we do that? Well, here are five reasons. First of all, it is reasonable because of what God has already done for us. Now, we already saw that. The very first part of verse 1, the word therefore, it looks back to everything that Paul has already expounded in the letter. And what he was talking about there is what God has done for us for our salvation. You see, he talks about our sin. We were helpless in our sin, under the wrath of God on a destructive, hopeless, downhill path, unable to save ourselves. As a matter of fact, we didn't even have the desire to save ourselves. What we do is run away from God. We repress the truth about God. We don't want God in our lives. That's what we're like. And if God had let us go that way, we would have gone that way to hell, and we would never have had a backward look over our shoulders. Instead of letting us go that way, God sent Jesus to die for us, to bear the penalty of our sin, taking our punishment himself. And then God sent the Holy Spirit to do that work in us that we need to regenerate us, to give us a repentant heart so we turn from sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. And not only that, the Holy Spirit has joined us to Jesus Christ. Well, we have his nature within us and we can't go back to being what we were. That's what God has done in our salvation. Now, Paul says, you see, there's a reason why you ought to go on with God. Here's what he says. Look, he says, look at what God has done. Isn't it reasonable to give yourselves utterly and sacrificially to God? He's given himself utterly and sacrificially for you. You see, if you understand the gospel, this kind of service is the most reasonable thing in the world. Well, here's the second reason. It's reasonable because of what God is continuing to do. You see, the salvation that God provides is not just a past thing. It's not just that Jesus died way back there to save us from our sins. God is working in us now. 
what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's what sanctification is all about. And look, the God who does things doesn't do them and drop them. You know, some of us are like that, and children are very often like that. They're playing with something over here, and they get tired of it and drop it. And then they go over here and play with something, and then they get tired of that and they drop it. And so they vacillate. They go from thing to thing. That's fine in children, but God is not like that. God never begins anything that he doesn't carry to completion, and therefore, if he has begun a good work in you, he is going to carry that on to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. Now, isn't it rational to agree with God and cooperate with God as he does it? It's futile to do the opposite, to fight against him. The most reasonable thing in the world is to give yourself wholeheartedly to God for that reason. Here's the third reason. It's reasonable because such service is God's will for us, and his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Now, that anticipates the next verse. We're going to be looking at that in detail as we go along. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, we often get hung up on this matter of God's will by wanting to know what God's specific will, the details of God's specific will for our lives may be. The problem, of course, is that God has not revealed that anywhere. Now, sometimes circumstances are an indication, and other things enter in, but he hasn't revealed that anywhere. And there's been a great deal of writing about this lately. Some people have said, well, there isn't any such thing as a detailed, specific will of God for your life. It's just general principles that you find in the Bible. Now, I disagree with that. I think there is a detailed plan that God has for every one of our lives simply because God has a detailed plan for everything. He foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. That's what the Westminster Standards say. And so that includes me and all the details of my life. But the critics are right in this, that God has not put that down in Scripture. It doesn't tell you there in the Bible who you're to marry, what job you're to take, where you're to live, and things like that. You have to make the best judgments as you can as a Christian, knowing what God wants for your life in a general fashion. But you see, the most important thing is that, what God once for your life, generally, and if you sum that up in the smallest possible space, what he wants you to be like is Jesus Christ. That's the will of God for you. You see, Paul has already said that in the eighth chapter of Romans. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You say, what is his purpose? Here's the answer. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God's plan is to make you like Jesus Christ, and that's what this verse is about. You see, when we think of the will of God, we get hung up on the specifics and we forget the big thing, or even if we're thinking about the big thing, we begin to think that God's will for us must therefore be hard and difficult and unreasonable. And actually, Paul says that's not the case, it's just the opposite. Going your way is what's hard, difficult, and unreasonable. The way of God he says, he uses three adjectives for it, is good, acceptable, and perfect. Just think of that. The will of God for you is good. It's good. When God says something, God's the master of the understatement. If he says good, he means good with a capital G. He means the best possible thing there could ever be. Why should you ever think that you could do something that would improve upon the goodness of the will of God for you? What could possibly be better than that you should be like Jesus Christ? And acceptable. What does that mean? It's acceptable. Does it mean acceptable to God? Of course, it's acceptable to God. That goes without saying. It's his will. That's not what Paul is saying there. He means acceptable to you. If you go his way, you'll find it to be acceptable 
you'll say, yes, that's, that's good, that's acceptable. I'm glad to accept that because I know it's good. And then finally, the last word he uses is perfect. You see, nothing you and I do is perfect. The only thing perfect is God and the will of God. So why do you want to settle for something that's imperfect? You see, let me put it this way. The most rational thing you can do is give yourself to God because that's the will of God for you. Here's a fourth reason. It's reasonable because God is worthy of our very best efforts. God is worthy. Think ahead to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. There in the fourth and fifth chapters, you have the heavenly hosts, the redeemed, the angels, the four living creatures, 24 elders, all praising God. And they do it in terms of his worth or worthiness. It means they're worshiping him. They're ascribing worth to God. And here's what they say in chapter four. You are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. They're praising Him as the Creator. They say you're worthy because you are the author of it all. You've made it all. We belong to you. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. You go to the next chapter, there they're praising Jesus Christ, and it's the same word. You are worthy, they say to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. You are worthy, Lord Jesus Christ. And then two verses later, verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That's the testimony of the heavenly hosts. The testimony of the redeemed. You say that he's worthy. If he's worthy, is he not worthy of your best efforts? Is this called a sacrificial, bodily, holy service that Paul unfolds here in Romans 12, not the most reasonable thing in the whole world? The problem is, I think, that we don't believe it. We say it. We come to church, we say, oh yes, Jesus is worthy, but we don't believe it because then we go out and we live for ourselves, you see? And so we undermine our testimony. We're saying, in effect, no, we don't believe that he's worthy. If we do, we'll live for him and the world will know it. The last point is this, it's reasonable because only spiritual things will last. You see, everything else, everything we handle, everything we see, everything we touch, even the things we covet and some people sell their souls for, all of that will pass away. It'll all be gone. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. If the whole heaven and earth will pass away, certainly the little small perishable things you and I cherish are going to pass away. Someday all of that's going to be gone. But the Bible also says, although the world and its desires pass away, he who does the will of God lives forever. That is, he does not pass away, and neither do his works. It says in Revelation, blessed are they who die in the Lord. They will rest from their labor, and their deeds will follow them. Now, learning to think that way is what it means, in part, to learn to think biblically or spiritually. That's what it is to begin to develop a Christian mind. I want to give you two illustrations as I close, very brief. The first is Jim Elliot, that young missionary. Perhaps the best-known thing Jim Elliot ever said, it's often quoted as this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot gave his life to God, he judged that to be reasonable service, and he reaped an everlasting reward. Here's the other example. Again, a missionary. His name was William Borden. He came from a wealthy, privileged family, went to Yale University. 
He had the promise of a wonderful and very lucrative career before him, but he was a Christian and he heard the call to serve as a missionary in China. And so he left for the field, even though his family and his friends called him a fool for going. None of his close family appreciated or understood what he was doing at all. After a short time away, even before he reached China, he contracted a fatal disease and he died. He'd given up everything to follow Jesus. He died possessing nothing in this world. The warden of Yale did not regret it. And the reason we know that is that when he was dying, he wrote a little note on a piece of paper that was found beside his bed. And the note said this, no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 12.1. Borden, like so many others, found the service of Christ to be eminently reasonable, and he gained a lasting reward. Our Father, we thank you for these truths. We recognize the hardness of our hearts, the secular thinking that holds us back. And our Father, we ask by your Spirit that you would overcome that in us, that by your grace we might become increasingly the kind of people you would have us be, and each one, one by one, might surrender his or her life completely to you. And so find your service and your will to be not only desirable, but acceptable and perfect as well. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from the Bible Study Hour, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of believers that hold to the historic creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. To learn more about the Alliance, select the appropriate link at thebiblestudyhour.org. Write to us at 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Your financial support makes our broadcasting, publishing, online, and event ministries possible. Please consider making a gift at our websites by phone at 1-800-488-1888 or by mail. Canadian listeners can reach us at P.O. Box 24097, RPO Josephine, North Bay, Ontario, P1B0C7. Thank you for your prayers and gifts and for listening to the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically. Biblically.